once came another man. Style of tall. Go ahead. I'll be honest. I, I played a very high standard. Young uh, superstar. Give some lessons. Determination. Was extremely... Welcome to the Chess Underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. And I felt be Chess Underground, September 2021. We are deep into the season three, which is streamers. I am thrilled to be joined this month by uh, national master Akash Maduri, who I will let talk about himself. Hey, what's up, Pete? What's up, uh, listeners of the Chess Underground podcast? My name is Akash, and I can't think of a better way to spend my birthday night. <laughs> oh my dude, it's your birthday? Yes, it's the big number 28. <laughs> Happy birthday. You, I did not know that. You didn't tell me that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's, I, I guess age just becomes less important the more, the more you age. I, I heard this quote one time. For kids, if you're like five years old and then you turn six, it's like such a significant moment in your life. But because it's what, like 20% of your life? But yeah. now that I'm 28, it's like every year is just another thing every day every birthday is just another day it, you know it's it's weird wait wait until you're like almost 40 <laughs> <laughs> I, I completely can empathize with that um <laughs> and and i have like the double experience because you know my birthdays are like eh, okay wait it's my birthday today i completely forgot and then i've got kids who are like oh my god i'm a teenager now you know and they're <laughs> celebrating all these like huge milestones and uh, it's like man you know i wish i wish birthdays were cool again Make birthdays cool again, right? I feel like if you're born on leap year, like February 29th, you'd probably appreciate your birthday every time it came around, once every four years. Dude, okay, crazy story. It's funny you brought that up. My son, okay, his he was, um, you know, I don't know if you know this, uh, but they give you like a, a expected date, like a due date, right? Mm-hmm. So his due date was February 29th. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good deal for you because that's like one seventy five percent less presents you have to buy. Right. He was he was not actually born on February twenty ninth, but like that was when uh, that was his due date, and we thought, oh my god, we're gonna have a leap year baby. That would have been amazing. <laughs> I know, I know. I was actually like, you know, when that happens, it's so rare. I was like rooting for it, you know. Um, <laughs> It was kind of, yeah, anyway. Uh, okay, that is neither here nor there. We're here to talk about some chess and like a lot of other uh, random stuff uh, because that's what this show is about, chess and a lot of other random stuff. Um, Akash, I know very recently you returned to Over the Board Chess. Uh, I have not yet. Um, I ran the US Open behind the scenes. I haven't played any games. Um, was, what was it like? Was it like this post-apocalyptic feeling or was it like more normal than you would have expected or somewhere in between? So my first event back was back in May. It was at the Chicago Open. Yeah. And 
literally I made the decision to join the night before. Um, I was at Rig in Wrigleyville <laughs> with with a couple of with a couple of buddies, you know. I, I know where this is going. Yeah. And I just I just decided okay, like I want a proper coin toss on whether or not I play. So I wrote some program in my browser and I actually weighed it a little bit in favor. I think it was like a 60% chance to end up going. And the math doesn't lie. And it said that I should play. So I just decided to play. It was super spontaneous. No, no preparation whatsoever. That, I mean, you know, seat of your pants, man. That's the way to do it. I, I made some very um, similar decisions uh, back when I was a much more active player. Uh, one of which uh, resulted in me like driving four hours, literally in the middle of the night, to make sure that I could make it there by by round cert. Um, <laughs> oh my god! How did it go? I mean, you know, like people these days, like chess is so much about like preparation, and you know, it's so spelled out, like the the method or the technique to being successful in an event. But how did it go? Uh, it went really well. I I took two half point buys on the uh the monday of just because i had some some conflicts but i scored i think three and a half out of five against all 2200 rated opponents which was uh pretty pretty good for me and what was really interesting was you know during this pandemic i've been playing a lot of blitz and bullet on lee chess and chess.com and so i thought that i was going to have a lot of bad time control habits, but maybe it was the ceremonial nature of sitting in front of the board in front of another human being and playing that made me take it a little bit more seriously. And I actually ended up spending a lot more time on these games than I normally do. That That's like fascinating. Like one, one of the questions that I've been, um, I guess, sort of obsessed with in a way is like, how is chess going to change? Like, I don't think anything can go through what we have been through in the past two years. And I mean anything, like going to the grocery store, you know, like anything, any activity can like go through that and come out the same on the other end. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like one of the things I've been obsessed with is like, how is chess going to change and how, how are tournaments going to change and what, what lasting impact are we going to see? You know? Right. And in particular, uh, like how players approach the game. Did you notice anything like as you were playing, like that you thought that's new, that's different? Well, I think definitely pushing those flank pawns is pretty. <laughs> it's all the rage nowadays. Hashtag it's, Harry the H pawn. And what's A? Is it Alfredo? No, what's A? Alfredo? Albert? Albert sounds like it could be the right name. I don't know. Whichever one has more meme potential. Um, but I, I guess it was definitely. You know, I'm not a very theoretical player generally. Like I mostly play all of these D4 sidelines, like the London, the Trumpovsky, the Verasov, Jobava London, all of that stuff. So I just kind of kept doing that. And thanks to streamers like International Master Eric Rosen, the London is super popular. So I guess, you know, shifts in repertoires and what people are paying attention to. I think that gets heavily influenced by what the popular streamers are playing nowadays because, I mean, you see someone like uh, Levy Rosman, Gotham Chess, 
he's commanding like tens of thousands of viewers each stream versus, you know, I really wonder how many people watch the world championship match. So it's kind of like these streamers are almost bigger influencers on the game than even the best players in the world. That's like such a, a weird statement, but I think you are 100% correct. And by the way, thank you for like reining in our podcast back to the topic at hand, which is of course streaming. Um, <clears throat> okay. It's interesting you brought up the London system. I actually made my first ever meme in my entire life, like a couple weeks ago. Oh, wow. Have you ever made any memes? Like, are you a meme maker or are you just like a consumer of memes? I'm primarily a consumer, but I have I have made a few in the past. So my first ever meme that I made was about the London system. Mm-hmm. Do you know the change my mind meme? Yes. You know, like the guy sitting at the table, right? Yep. <laughs> so my first ever meme was um, London players still cut the crust of their sandwiches. Change my mind. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I... Um... I haven't done that in a while, but I could see. I mean, I, I love how much the I love how much the community as a whole hates on the London <laughs> because I mean it has this reputation, right? Of you know, you just play d four, knight f three, bishop e four, e three, c three. Like you just do the same thing over and over. And I think for if you give that to a beginner they're just going to do that they're going to play um, right. whatever they're they were told the system is but i think i truly feel like the right way to play the london is uh, in in the spirit of bruce lee uh be like water <laughs> yes like you, amorphous yeah yeah you have to be super amorphous you got to respond to what your opponent is doing and understand the nuances and different move orders and so from that perspective to me the london ends up almost being this like canvas more than this like operational manual. So that's interesting because you were talking about like differences in chess style, artists versus scientists. Before we get into that though, I just want to mention like, I actually played the London forever. So Mm. I feel like I'm fully authorized to like hate on it because it was my main (laughs) weapon for like five years. Totally. Um, But this was, I mean, that was like in probably, oh God, 2001 to 2006, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. I just like play every, no, no matter what they did, like D4, G6, Bishop F4 was my next move. You know what I mean? Like I just straight up played the London for like five years. Nice. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like uh, almost a, um, I don't know, a fond memory slash, uh, oh my God, what was I doing moment? Um, but yeah, so there's this idea, I think that, pervades chess about like different styles, right? Like on one side you have um, like the quote unquote strategic players. Um, You have the idea of like chess is everything, art, sports, science, fight. Where do you come down on this? What are your thoughts about chess styles, artists versus scientists? You mentioned this blank canvas. Does that mean you are like a London artiste? Um, So I I think at the highest level, you know, maybe not even the highest level, but once you're like 2000 or above, I feel like you kind of need to be able to play in multiple styles. You can't really, you can't really fall under a specific category. I mean, even someone like Tal has some very, you know, you know, classically 
positional games. Um, Kramnik is in his later years became a super strong fighter, even though he was, you know, famous for the Berlin. Um, but I, I do think that players tend to fall uh, generally under one or the other. And, you know, I have a science background, like a lot of my career outside of the chess world is pretty analytical and scientific, but I definitely identify more on the artist side of chess. Like I, I, I like the uncertainty and just being able to to create something brand new over the board, something wild and unexpected and, you know, surprise whoever the audience is. So do you view, do you view chess almost as like a, a medium in some respects for like your artistic expression? hundred percent, hundred percent. Like I, I'm not the type of player who enjoys memorizing like 30 moves of theory. Like my, I'm sure if you were to compare me to some like 1500s, like 1500s, some 1500s will know more theory than me. But um, I've I've always felt comfortable in the unknown and the uncertain when it comes to the chessboard. And so from that regard, you know, it's almost like true, true expression rather than just remembering what to do. It's interesting to think of like... Um a, a game, right, with like a confined set of rules and also a confined set of space, like the entire game is conducted within these 64 squares, right, the shape of a chessboard um, as something that can create art. Um, mm-hmm. But I like I, I would agree with you. I mean, it, it is a medium in a lot of ways. You know, you can see beauty on a chessboard. You can see beautiful combinations. Um, even from like a very pleb view uh for lack of a better way of describing it have you seen the tool gg plot i think it's called have you are, are you familiar with that tool um it sounds vaguely familiar can you remind me so what it does is it like plots the moves of a game by just simply like dots and lines of the move that was made and then if you look at the the entire plot after the conclusion of the game there's all of these like dots and multicolored lines like splattered across the chessboard and it almost looks like a piece of visual art that you could like print off and put on the wall. Yes. Okay. This is exact. I was looking for this like all of last week, but I didn't know how to describe it to someone. So mm. thank you for that, Pete. Um, I think it's, I live to serve my liege. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, I, I've thought about derivative artworks that could come from chess games and there's definitely there's definitely some visual appeal to something like that where you could basically see, okay, which parts of the board ended up being more important if there were a lot of pieces moving over there. Maybe the king side was more important in one particular game, the queen side more important in another. Um, And I feel like there's always a little bit of a risk to when you distill a game like that, you lose some of like the beauties of those critical moments and those critical positions. But I think, I think there is definitely something to it. And I, I also think creating derivative artworks based off of the input of a chess game is something that hasn't really been fully explored, but I, I think it would be really cool to see artists play in that space some more. Yeah. Like there, there is like chess art exists, but Mm -hmm. That's different, right? I mean, that's not um, 
there's this idea of uh, as you as you described it, right? Derivative art, and you're you hit it spot on. What usually happens with the ggplot tool is you can kind of almost tell the story of a game just from a visual product. You know what I mean? Like, oh, this game was decided based on a, a kingside assault with probably some sacrifices. You know, you can see all of the pieces, and, the, and typically the pieces are color coded, right? So like white moves might be like a neon green. And black moves might be like a neon orange or something like that. Um, so you can tell what side was defending, attacking based on um, just simply, like literally based on like color streaks, which is kind of mm -hmm. fascinating. Yeah, that, that is super cool. I'm definitely going to look through it. Is it uh, its own website or just Google search at? I would just Google search. I actually don't even remember the exact name of the tool. Um, but if you just Google search like chess, move plot, or I think it might have even, I think the actual name was ggplot, maybe. Um, I'm sure that our listeners will like uh, give us a bunch of messages correcting us and telling us, hey, it's this, or hey, it doesn't exist anymore. But I know I know it was, I know, uh, I, I played around with a, it a lot, just like uploading PGNs and, and that sort of thing. And it was pretty cool. That's very exciting. I'll definitely check that out. You know, this, there's a couple of themes that you kind of touched on. Um, the constrained, the constrained um, medium that is chess, you know, 64 squares, 32. Yeah, the limited pieces. art space, right? Right, but like it creates this whole universe of possibilities and the possibilities themselves are extremely distinct from one another. So there's uh, another space that I've been getting really into. Um, it's uh, within the blockchain world. It's for... NFTs. So an, an NFT, for those who might not be familiar, it stands for non-fungible token. It's a, it, it's basically the opposite of a fungible token. So <laughs> I was going to say, what if I want to funge the token? How do I funge a token? So like, <laughs> you know, if I were to trade you a dollar, uh, right. like a dollar equals a dollar equals a dollar. I mean, I guess there's some people that would collect Or it equals like what, one point? two Canadian dollars? Yeah, it, it equals that. Like there, there's a lot of, there's easy ways to, you know, transfer it and uh, exchange it. Whereas non-fungible tokens are these super unique things on that live on the blockchain. There, are they all digital web. things? Like just completely digital? Yeah, the, the, the token itself is like proof of, uh, the digital proof of the asset. But there are some physical pieces that have their digital token counterpart. So there was actually a really famous demonstration of this. Um, are you familiar with Banksy, Pete? I am familiar with Banksy. Um, just again, for the listeners who aren't, he's like this underground artist whose real identity is not known. And he does sort of like surprise pieces of artwork, which could be anything from like a mural to like a self-destructing painting, right? Am I pretty much nailing that? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, a lot of his imagery is super iconic. I'm sure mm -hmm. many of the listeners have come across it. Um, but there was a famous Banksy piece that this group ended up purchasing. Um, they created a, an NFT for the Banksy piece. And on live video, they set the physical painting on fire um, to demonstrate their their dedication towards the digital digitally native version of the piece so 
once they burned it, the only version of the piece that existed was the NFT. And a couple months later, they ended up selling. They ended up selling the NFT for somewhere like five to six times the original investment. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but, I think this is a, like a really strangely unex- unexplored place. Yeah, it totally is. And the reason why I kind of brought up NFTs is there's this website that's super cool. Make sure you guys check it out if you haven't. It's called Art Blocks. And the idea is you have... B-L-O-X or B-L-O-C-K-S? B-L-O-C-K-S, Art Blocks. Okay. Um, And the idea is you have a programmer uh, or a generative artist that basically writes a script for a program and um, there's maybe like a thousand versions of the work that are going to be created. Um, And there's inherent randomness for what's going to come out. So you'll have like a set of pieces that all have the same script, but then you have a wide variety of different outcomes that come come out of it. Uh, Definitely check out some of these pieces if you haven't, because they're uh they're really cool i would recommend the series fidenza f-i-d-e-n-z-a uh by tyler hobbs but i i i feel like this sort of can i I ask for clarification before i I keep that thought i just want a little clarification here are these like ai generated pieces of art ai in the sense of like it's a program generating it how does that like could you just clarify that yeah so it's not AI that's necessarily generating it. It's like the programmer is creating a blank canvas mm-hmm. and there's an input. So maybe the timestamp is an input mm-hmm. and that timestamp input creates some randomness so that the final product is something similar to the other versions of the product, but also in, uh, very distinct. If that makes sense, that might be a little bit confusing. <laughs> I think I follow. Yeah. So, like, I'll just give a very crude example. So, there's a project called, like, Dino Pals. It's essentially a hundred of these cute little dinosaurs. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's very... This it's is bringing very, back yeah. memories of this TV show my kids used to watch called Dinosaur Train. And anybody <laughs> out there who's listening to this and knows what Dinosaur Train is, God bless you. Um, okay, go on. Well, like the, the, it's just like in within Dino Pals, there is a hundred of these art pieces that are created, and they're all very similar but somewhat different. Like you'll have maybe a T Rex, you'll maybe have a Triceratops. The, the the colors of the dinosaurs will be different. Maybe they're positioned in a certain way. Maybe the background is a little bit different, but they are all are all essentially unique. Hmm. Um, which I find a lot of parallels in the chess world too. You know, like every game, you know, we're all given the same rules. We're all given, um, we're we're all conf- uh, we're we're all stuck with the same rules. But yet, the diversity of pieces, the, uh, the diversity of games, and I guess the works of art that can come out of those games is super different, super interesting. Right. Yeah, I mean, ab- absolutely. That so that's why I was asking sort of my my AI question, right? Because, um, I mean, there's such a direct parallel there between like artistic AI and chess AI. And even like, I don't know if you've seen, have you ever seen one of those AIs that like writes a story? Like it'll literally just like write a a piece of literature or a poem or a story or something like that. 
Yeah, I have. I mean, you're the you're the literature uh, buff. Like, what do you, what do you think of the, those pieces? So uh, when I first uh, gained consciousness to stick with the AI metaphor <laughs> as a writer, right? So like when I first came online as a writer, um, the very first thing that I remember being taught or like learning that stuck with me was like what what makes literature literature. You know, what makes a piece of writing literature compared to just, like, um, words on a piece of paper or technical writing or, like, you know, the words on the back of a cereal box or the instructions in an instruction manual, right? Like, what differentiates, what differentiates that from, like, literature, you know, mm-hmm. capital L um, literature if such thing existed? And the answer was, like, it, it, you know, it offers some kind of insight into the human condition, right? Hmm. So, like... Let's take an AI story. What an AI piece of intelligence can produce literature that makes you or I, if we don't know who the author is and we're just simply presented with the words and we take some meaning from it and we feel or like interpret some kind of commentary on the human condition. You know, what does that mean? Right? Like something inhuman, something non-human is uh, offering insight into the human condition. That's a really strange thought, right? I mean, let's draw it back to chess for a minute because there was um, recently Kasparov was commenting on AI on Twitter and his basic premise was that like at some point somewhere a human has their hands on this, right? Like they're programming the code or they're creating the, the intelligence and at somewhere, some point, a human is telling it what to do. And the same thing would apply in this example that we're looking at of like AI generated quote unquote literature. Um, and again, pulling it back to chess, like what about like Leela Zero or Stockfish or um, what's the really big one that always pu- pushed its rook pawns all the way down? <laughs> Alpha Zero. Zero. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Like those games, we look at them and we say, oh my God, this is like a brilliancy, right? This is beautiful. Like we're attributing some kind of literary meaning to the game or some kind of artistic meaning to the game. Yeah. You know, when I when I first saw those Alpha Zero games, um, the first match, I think, against Stockfish, um, I told my roommate at the time, National Master Michael Audger, um, kind of dramatically that I think this is how God would play chess Uh, because it it, it really is like, it's really so different from, you know, your old school stockfish. I know now there's like the neural net stuff within stockfish, but maybe like even in like the early 2010s, there was nothing like this at all. And so there was always this uh, inhuman aspect to computer chess in general and now we're we're getting to the point where the the computers play almost as perhaps more human-like than we do and i think this is just a general trend that's happening whether it's chess literature um (laughs) computers are just taking over so it is no longer Larry Bird saying it was God disguised as Michael Jordan. It is now God disguised as Alpha Zero. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and instead of dunk, dunking on the entire Celtics team, it's just like uh, pushing its age form. Yeah. Actually, 
Pete, did you see, I think there was, this is like a couple of years ago, um, I th- and it was published on the Chessbase website, um, that program that basically composed beautiful chess studies. That's ringing a bell. Yeah, like um, like weird, like Maiden 7s or self-mates and stuff, right? Yeah, it, it was like self-mates, sometimes like stalemates, but the for whatever reason the the positions themselves held this held this tangible beauty that's really hard to describe um and it was cool to see just a I remember this article I remember like um they showed some examples of ones that were like not all that cool right am i thinking of the right thing and then they showed like okay here's some or like the ai came up with this but it's pretty pedestrian and then they showed some other ones where it was like oh my god how did this idea arise yeah I think it's that same article, but um, I mean, in a way that's kind of depressing, right? Because it's just like you can brute force anything now, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I guess it depends on, you know, uh, if you're familiar with the singularity, like where you are on that side of the argument is our computer is going to bring a, a utopia or dystopia to us. I don't. I try not Look, to think I've too much. Look, I've seen the Arnold Schwarzenegger it. movies. I know the answer. Okay, for sure. I'll, I'll I'll have to review those. I don't think I've actually seen a single Terminator movie. So this is where I could pull like the 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 two thousand college student person uh, voice and be like, "What? You haven't seen a Terminator movie, dude? What are you doing?" Yeah, I've been I've been slacking. I'll definitely check my on demand later tonight. They offer a definitive answer to the question you just asked. Okay, for sure. So right we're or all, wrong. We're all screwed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good there was know. some other interesting movie I watched recently on Netflix that was basically the same thing. Um, I can only remember the premise. I can't remember the title, but basically, like, this guy is in prison, and the only thing, like, he can communicate with is an artificial intelligence. Hmm. And it's like, you know, it, it refuses to let him out, and it, it, it's a fascinating show. Um, our listeners will figure out the, the title, hopefully. So do you like, I know you're, you're now working for USCF. Uh, what's your official title again? So my official title is assistant director of events uh, for US Chess. I work in the events department. I think a lot of people, I, I, I suspect this because it was true of myself. Um, when I was a US Chess member, before I was an actual staff member, before I was an employee, I didn't really understand like what US Chess was or did as well as I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically our department is the events department, which is the arm of US Chess that handles anything related to events. So like if you want to be a tournament director, you work with our department. Um, ratings, you work with our department. Uh, hosting a tournament, you know, um, we host six a year now. Uh, all of the Scholastic Nationals, the U.S. Open, and the Junior and Senior Open. So, um, yeah, that is my first title. So, I would love to kind of ask you, I mean, it seems like there is this, like, macro-level influence of technology um, really influencing our game, sometimes um, for better or for worse, I guess, depending on where you where you are on that argument, but... What do you think chess's future looks like in like 20, 25 years? I mean, it it seems like these engines are coming close to perfection. And I wonder, does that just 
exhaust the desire for humans to play once that happens? Or will it bring about positive changes and just more enthusiasm to the game? That is actually an excellent question. And by the way, thank you for interviewing me. (laughs) (laughs) No, but like, legit, that's a great question. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about that, actually. Um, The first one is like, checkers has already been solved, right? Yep. And people still play. And people still play competitively and people still play tournaments. Um, I don't think that the idea of an engine being able to solve chess, which may or may not happen in our lifetimes, I don't think that that changes anything really. Because an engine solving chess versus a human being able to understand why chess is solved is it's not even a gap. It's not even an abyss. It's not even, you know, it's like light years, right? It's, it's just not even the same thing. Yeah. It's not the same ballpark. It's not the same, whatever you have. Um, so like fundamentally, I don't think it will change how human. Okay. Here, here's a great analogy. Since we, we've kind of been <clears throat> painting all around this picture during our entire conversation here, we know all the words that exist and we have a dictionary, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. We can look up any word at any time. We know exactly how it's spelled. We know exactly what it means. We know all of the different connotations and denotations and uses. Uh, we have quote unquote solved language, but we can still use those words to tell a story or to create a poem or to create art with, right? Yeah. And that's sort of how I view chess as well. Like, even if it does eventually get solved, whatever they, that may even mean, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even if computers do finally reach, like, perfection, you know, computers do play, like, Mike, like God disguised as Michael Jordan. I don't know that that necessarily changes much for the day-to-day, because that's not what you and I and other players use chess for, you know? We use it for art. We use it for personal connection. We use it for getting our competitive spirit out, right? We, it's like a fix, right? We get our competitive fix. We, we compete. Um, so, like, does it, does it matter if chess is objectively solved? My, my gut says that the answer to that question is no, it doesn't matter at all. There are some other implications, like as technology becomes more micro and stronger, we have to have like even more and more fair play measures in place, right? Sure. Yep. But that's been true for the last like twenty years. Um, so does does this, you know, does this end of the line when chess is objectively solved by Alpha thirty seven or whatever, <laughs> right? <laughs> does that oncoming does that oncoming result mean a chess apocalypse? Or is it more of just like another, another thing that happens? And I, I lean more towards the second. It's just going to be like a blip and, oh, hey, cool. Chess got solved by Alpha 37. Uh, let's <laughs> I, get back I, to our game. <laughs> I, love, I love this analogy. I mean, I, it, it definitely makes a lot of sense to me when you're, when you're explaining it uh, in parallel to language. Um, I will say, though, that I, I do tend to get exhausted when... I like walk to a game and then I sit down next to this nine-year-old or 10-year-old prodigy that just happens to know like 
30, 35 lines of stockfish backed theory. And that is definitely a, that's just like, for me, a depressing moment. Yeah, so it's interesting that you asked that exact question, Akash, because the guest that I had on last month, right before you, National Master Gopal Menon, who I believe you know, um, he used to have a nickname for me back when I was an active player, and he called me the Kid Crusher um, mm. because, because, like, uh, I annihilated, like, under 18 players, like, it was going out of style, you know, like, um, even those that were higher rated than me or around my rating, I was just, I just had an extremely high plus score against kids. And I theorized that the reason this is the case is because of my coaching experience. And I used to coach a lot. And so sort of in keeping with some of the themes that we've talked about, my I will divulge right now on the show for all of our wonderful listeners why I am the I believe I am the kid crusher. Awesome. <laughs> I'm looking <laughs> no, forward to this. Yes. So I have I have two uh, like uh, strategic approaches when I have to play a kid in a tournament game. Um, the first one is get to an end game as quick as possible. Nice, <laughs> and then just grind them down in an end game. Um, I don't know if it's a patience thing or um, just you know that's an area where they're not as well developed in their chess uh, play. But so strategy number one is if I can get to an end game as quickly as possible, I will. And then strategy number two is play uh, as unusually boring as possible. <laughs> so interesting. What I mean by that is like I'll try to play like offbeat lines that have like uh, particularly dull reputations. Um, like okay, there's just like nothing going here for either side, and then uh, and then see what happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you can kind of extrapolate what may occur in those situations when you're facing a younger opponent. Yeah. They probably just get impatient or bored and mm -hmm. uh, overextend or something like that. Go for something they shouldn't, stop paying attention for a move or a half move. Um, and then and then sometimes you can capitalize on that and sometimes you can't. Yeah, that's basically uh, the what the approach you're describing essentially explains the type of games I lose in. Like, I, I basically play chess <laughs> See, like and you're younger kid. than me, so this would work perfectly. <laughs> oh, yeah, it totally would. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm very impatient, and, like, I need some spice mm -hmm. on the board, or, I, like, I'll just get bored. I'm actually... This, so this, is, this might blow your mind a little bit. I'm the same way. Like, I much prefer, like, an, an exciting, fascinating game with, like, stuff going on everywhere and, like, very artistic and creative. Um, and if I, like, if I have my choice, that's the type of game I'll go for. But when I play a kid, I just completely ignore all of that. <laughs> I just mm -hmm. like, I, it's almost like I have to, um, like lock away the part of myself that wants an enjoyable game and just like annihilate this little kid <laughs> mm -hmm. and get on to the next round. <laughs> that sounds like really horrible to say out loud in, in a lot of ways. Well, in, in your defense, I think that there's some minimalism um, and beauty to end games themselves. Like, I, I think I started doing this sometime during the pandemic, but I started looking at the table-based positions yeah. uh, like something really uh, that might seem like a draw, like rook mm -hmm. and two pawns versus bishop and three connected pawns. And 
just started to look at like how those positions should be won if they can be won by the rook and I think there's a lot of beauty to that, but it's not what most people immediately think of when they, when they think of uh, art, art in chess. You know, the the end game is the purest form of the game. I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I you know, whenever I look at a table based position, I have this weird thought pop into my head, and I think like, what would the grandmasters of 1950 think of this? like idea or, or concept, right? Like what would they think of table bases? What would they think of this position? Like if I showed them this position, I was like, this is a forced win for white, you know, <laughs> would they just mm-hmm. be like, get out of here, you're ridiculous, you know, or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think they, it would be, it'd be very interesting, especially someone like Capablanca, who uh, I think arguably built up a lot of the classical end game principles. Would he enjoy it of the table base or would he be disgusted by it i don't i don't really know i always think of when i think of stuff like this i think of this uh really funny i guess i would call it an essay it was like a blog post from like 2002 or like that time frame where it was like a, a fake conversation between a person from 2002 and a person from like 1850 about um world of warcraft <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> like trying to explain what is World of Warcraft to like somebody from like 1850. <laughs> yeah. They I don't would... know if that like still exists somewhere on the internet, but if you can find it, it is a hilarious read. Hell yeah. I'll definitely check that out. Maybe uh producers can put something in the show notes. Yeah. In fact, it wasn't even World of Warcraft. It was about a very specific thing in World of Warcraft. <laughs> Are you okay if I get deep into this for a moment? Because it's Please. really funny. I'd love it. So, okay, it was a blog post about basically trying to explain technology to someone deep in time, right? And the bit of technology they were trying to explain was not World of Warcraft itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As a coder, I think you might really appreciate this next bit. Okay. So you're like you're you're like a, a software engineer, right? Y- yeah. Okay. And you go to coding bootcamp or software engineering bootcamp, right? That's correct. Yep. Okay. So someone had coded in World of Warcraft. Someone had written some scripts or a code or something or a macro. I don't even know what. To get these dwarves to jump off of a cliff (laughs) and kill themselves (laughs) in a pattern that linked to a website where you could buy World of Warcraft like gold. So like really yes okay so like if you were traversing this popular area of the World of Warcraft map mm-hmm. you would notice all of these dwarves like continually <laughs> leaping to their death spelling out the name of a website on the ground below and oh the article <laughs> yes okay and so the article was about trying to explain that <laughs> <laughs> oh to someone God. in 1850 <laughs> so like trying to explain the idea of these dwarves leaping off a cliff and spelling out a website. I mean, think about all of the different things you would have to like get them to understand. Bro, just think about the therapist <laughs> of that guy from 1850. <laughs> I just diagnosed his clinical insane. <laughs> oh my God. Oh man, that's so ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, just think about that though. Like that's what... I mean, forget 1850, 1930. Yeah. 1950. 
where do we where like at what point in time could we actually explain that to somebody and have it make have them be able to understand it i mean maybe the late 1990s i, I think I it would have know. to be at least like after the internet was a thing yeah totally i mean the rate of technology increasing is is so ridiculous like we we take for granted these mm-hmm. cell phone, uh, smartphones right but each every time we're carrying a smartphone that's essentially a supercomputer that has more computing power than the entirety of nasa when they ran their apollo missions yep it's, yeah, what was that like? What was the name of that supercomputer? There's like this famous supercomputer from the '50s that we all learn about, like in school. You know what I'm talking about? Um, I can't remember the name, but I know like some company called like Cray Cray Supercomputing that they they used to be big back in the day. I don't know if they still are. Um. Yeah. I'm like I'm like googling it. I'm trying I'm trying to figure this out. But they're, yeah, they're, you're right. Like the thing that you hold in your hand has more power than like you know the most powerful supercomputer ever invented before. Like what? Like 2005? Something Maybe later? Something ridiculous. I mean, Moore's law has been going ham. Like every what is it? Every 18 months, the amount of computing. Uh, computing speed and like memory doubles something like that so i i wouldn't be i wouldn't be surprised um, i feel like we need a blog post about someone from today september 26 2021 trying to explain the phrase moore's law going ham to someone from 1850 that would be great i would love that <laughs> <laughs> you know what i'm th- this conversation is kind of making my mind go places and you know what I would love to see, maybe as some potential evolution of chess. Um, I'm sure you've seen uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I have. Not only do I have four children, but I'm also a huge nerd, and I watched all the movies before I even had my first kid. That's amazing. <laughs> but obvi- of course, the famous uh, Wizard's Chess scene with mm-hmm. Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Um, I would love to be able to play Wizard's Chess on an Oculus. That and would be just, cool. just like be like maybe every game you're randomly one one piece. Maybe you're a pawn one game. Maybe you're a, a knight or a rook another game. That sounds like super fun to me because we when we play when we play the game, we have this lack of humanity towards the individual pieces themselves, but yeah, they're just like our minions that we throw around. Yeah, definitely. And like, I feel like you only get attached to a piece if it becomes good. Like, you're playing the Sicilian dragon, your dark squared bishop. You know, it's hard to part with that. But putting players inside of the shoes of their pieces, that it seems like there's some potential there. But I mean, I always loved the idea of wizard's chess, but no one's really been able to do it. Have you been to like Harry Potter World at Universal Studios in Florida? No, the only time I went to Orlando, Florida was for the US Open in 2011. Okay. Um, and I didn't once step out of the airport. How ridiculous is that? The airport? <laughs> yeah, because did you get to the site to play the tournament? 
Yeah, the the hotel was in the airport. It was like in oh the Orlando God. airport. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So we uh, one of the great uh, things about my job, uh, you know, we run events. I get to travel the, to the events, and the K to twelve in December is frequently in Orlando. Um, so I usually stay a couple days after the K twelve ends and kind of enjoy the the weather. I, you know, I live in Illinois, so it's cold. You get a little warm weather. Uh, Harry Potter World in Orlando uh, at the Universal Studios is very cool. They do not have a wizard's chest yet, but I feel like that's a ride or like that's an experience that they should totally do. Like that would be so cool. 100%. And they could pull it off. Like the stuff that they have there is so cool in advance. Like they could, they could definitely pull that off. So like right now, Universal Studios, we're calling you out. Uh, We need this. Hell yeah. I would totally be about that. Did you uh, did you have the butter beer when you were there? I did. I gotta be honest. I was a little disappointed. I've heard that, but yeah. how do you mess up a drink that just sounds so exquisite in the books? I agree. Like in the books, it sounds amazing. It's just like too sweet. Is that's what they that's what they did? They messed it up by making it too sweet. Gotcha. Maybe there's some like recipes online to to create some homemade butter beer. That sounds like a good weekend project. I completely agree. I'm going to go ahead and make a note of that right now. Make <laughs> butter beer. That's a great idea. Yeah, I, it was like, you know, my wife and I both got, got a butter beer and walked around and we're like, mm, too sweet. Hmm. That's unfortunate. Yeah. All right. On a scale of, uh, hold on. I had, I had this great question. Let me redo it. Redo. Do over. <laughs> On a scale of Dogecoin to SafeMoon, how into DAOs are you? Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) Full disclosure, I do not have any Dogecoin or SafeMoon. I am, so I Was that a fair scale or was that like, I was trying to go from like well-known to like less well-known. Yeah, no, that was a very fair scale. Um, I would say I'm probably somewhere in the middle right now. So uh, for for the listeners um, who might not be familiar, there's this thing called uh, DAOs, D-A-O's. It stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. And a lot of people are framing them as the future of companies where essentially people can... Uh, invest in a project and they get to dictate the governance where the project goes, if it like spins out new projects, et cetera, et cetera. So I recently did join a DAO called Vita DAO, Vita DAO, V-I-T-A-D-A-O, which is, you can think of it as a an organization that is uh, funding research in the longevity space. So essentially uh, lifespan extension, health span extension, uh, extension. And yeah, they essentially get to uh, own the intellectual property for any of the research that gets, um, that gets output from it. But it's really cool because, you know, one of the, I, I come from the pharmaceutical industry and I'm very well aware of a lot of the a lot of the criticisms in the space. But I think the cool thing about a group like VitaDAO is you have it so that if you believe medicine should be made for a specific 
um, disease or in this case, longevity research, so lifespan extension, you can go do that. It essentially democratizes the process of getting getting shit done, um, which I think is very is that, their, is that like their slogan, democratizing the process of getting shit done? Um, I don't think so, but I can probably... That's uh, a pretty good I can, slogan. I feel like that that's not bad. Yeah, I mean, I can, I'll send a proposal. We'll, we'll make it official there. But the, yeah, the cool thing about DAOs is I, I think we're, we're at the super early stages. So, um, you know, we've, we've all been through this pandemic and have had to work remotely for, geez, how long has it been now? A year and a half? Something like that. A year and a half. Too long. I can tell you exactly because my son was born like two weeks before the pandemic started. So it has been 20 months. That's, yeah, that's, that's really challenging. Um, and I, I don't know about you, Pete, but I prefer to work with people in person um, while I do. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. And I, I do like the the benefits of remote, you know, you don't have to wake up as early. Um, it's a, you can connect. attend Zoom meetings in your pajamas. Hell yeah, the paja- pajamas are like pajamas the new slacks. Um, but but it is harder to get things done in a remote environment. So I think one of the challenges that DAOs are facing right now is a problem of coordination. Like, how do you actually leverage the work and um, efforts of people spread across around the globe? to get shit done. That's a, that's, that's a really big problem. And um, a good example of how a lot of the challenges within the crypto space are not necessarily technological challenges. I mean, in a lot of ways there they are, but almost equally important, they're social challenges. How, how can, how, how can we really do this uh, when this hasn't been done before? Right. At some point, a DAO has to become a cow, right? Mm -hmm. And there has to be some centralized force driving it. Yeah, or there has to just be like a lot of heavy lifters, like right. willing to lift. And uh, actually, uh, they say that eventually, like a lot of DAOs will be able to pay their members based off of work. So um, there's a company called. Hence that, well, the idea that, of uh, the company model. Exactly. So there's a group called Gitcoin. Uh, they're based out of Colorado, I believe. I mean, they're they're decentralized, but the creators are from Colorado, and their mission is so uh, to make it so that most people don't have to work for a company if they don't want to. They can choose how much time they want to spend in a DAO, like what projects to work on, and based off of the the work that they they put in, they would get paid. So um, it's still extremely early days, but I find. I find models like that super interesting and super captivating. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's the idea of, um, I mean, well, the, the A is the most important letter, right? The idea of autonomy, the idea of being able to contribute where and to the amount that you wish. Yeah, totally. And not to, not to uh, force this tangent, but... Uh, I know the the theme of this podcast season is streamers, but um, I think it's really interesting how once the pandemic came, I mean, I know a lot of people just had more time on their hands and ended up going into streaming. But one of the one of my favorite things about streaming has been the autonomy. Like I can I can set my own schedule. I can do it whenever I want. Um, 
I think autonomy is just some internal uh, desire that we all have, um, but most of us aren't aren't able to afford it. You know, it's interesting. Um, everything changed. So mm-hmm. th- those two words are actually uh, the first line of a short story that I wrote one time. Um, and I think it's like, it, it really describes the past 20 months, right? Like everything changed and, uh, we all work in our pajamas. I, <laughs> I feel like there should be some, some record of like, uh, how long did you go without wearing like, like slacks or jeans, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and now there's all of these new spaces. You know, we already touched earlier on AI. We touched on NFTs. And, and now we're touching on DAOs. There's all of these new um, <clears throat> There was this idea, like, what was the final frontier, right? Like, space, the final frontier. Or, like, what was, you know, what was the last thing left to conquer? But now we're finding all of these new things cropping up. There are new... I hate to use this term, but like new battle zones, right? There are, there are new areas of exploration. Maybe that's a better way of putting it, like a DAO, um, that are creating new landscapes, essentially, that you can explore. Yeah. Or new, new blank canvases, maybe, to, to bring back what we were talking about earlier. Totally. And I mean, I think that goes back to even your, uh, your earlier point about even if chess gets exhausted by computers or whatnot like we're it's not gonna it's not like we're gonna know everything there is to know and so right actually that's like a fascinating thought right like there's a limit to human capability even if chess is solved nobody's gonna be able to know all of the reasons why and how it's solved right (laughs) there's like this fascinating limit on human like consciousness intelligence whatever you want to call it yeah, definitely. But like at the end of the day, we will still be able to explore. And I mean, I think for better or worse, we've we've been through COVID. Seems like we're still going to be going through it for some period of time. Um, and so, what I've tried to do, both on and on the ch- off the chessboard, to be honest, is try to kind of explore and find those new battle zones, those new frontiers that are coming up. Um, and at least for me, that's why I, I recently kind of made the transition to software engineering, just because um, it seems like that's one of the best spaces to really mm-hmm. be able to build out like whatever new future we're walking into. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well put. Well put would be the best way to describe that. New, new future we're walking into. Right? I mean, that's what it is, right? Okay, so I got to, I got to, it's interesting. I got to tell you the story. Um, I recently, within the past few years, moved back to the hometown that I grew up in in the 90s. Have you ever seen, you haven't seen The Terminator, so I'm not going to take this for granted. Have you seen The Matrix? Yes. You know how The Matrix, the original Matrix, the very first one, describes 1999 as like humanity's golden age or golden year, golden era, whatever? Yeah. So I moved back to the hometown I grew up in and I was driving around it about eight or nine months into the pandemic. And I drove by the old mall and I drove by 
where I had my first ever job was at the JC Penney at the old mall. Nice. And it the whole old mall was completely different. There were maybe 30% of the stores still even in business, right? A lot of things had closed down because brick and mortars really got hammered during the pandemic. And I drove by the JC Penney again. And as I was driving by it, I kind of looked inside the windows of what used to be like the main entrance, like this grand facade, you know, um, like multiple double doors, all glass. It was supposed to be like, the, oh, you walk in, you see the jewelry counter, you see the perfumes, you see the different departments, right? And I drove by very slowly by the front of that main entrance and I looked inside and it was this really weird, um, what do they call those things that you do in grade school? Like a diorama, right? Where you put like your little dinosaurs in the diorama. Yeah. It was this really weird diorama of like half-dressed mannequins some of them tilted to the side, clothes hanging off the rack. And I had this thought, like, it, it looked, it looked, as I drove by it, it looked super post-apocalyptic, you know? Mm-hmm. Like some really bad stuff had happened, and everybody had evacuated in a hurry, and there was just, like, stuff, like, tilted and hanging and, and drooping and off-kilter, and everything was out of place, Right. Yeah. To go from this grand facade where everything was in place and neat and well put together, you know, 15, 20 years ago, to here I am back in my hometown driving by this rundown old mall with the JCPenney that has been closed for so long that the, the sign hasn't even been removed. You know, it's just like the faded JCPenney is still on the wall. Mm-hmm. And the thought that I had was, man, that looks really like super messed up and post-apocalyptic. And then the thought that I had was maybe like all the bad stuff already happened and we're just living in that world now and we haven't acknowledged it. That's beautiful. (laughs) That was like a way too deep thought for your birthday on a Sunday night, right? No, that's... I went like super deep there, didn't I? I love that. I love that. So you're saying like maybe the worst has already happened and... Tomorrow. I mean, maybe, maybe this better. is post-apocalypse, right? Like we're, we're, we're waiting for some other shoe to drop for better or worse, right? Like everything's going to go back to normal or everything's not, but maybe that shoe isn't dropping. Like maybe we're already here, you know? Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where I stand on that. Like I'm, I generally live my life very optimistically. Um, it's been colored in the opposite direction since COVID a little bit, but for me, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not entirely sure if, if things are going to get better or they're going to get worse. So I'm trying to maximize my enjoyment in other aspects. Like I'm, I'm, I know we're both from Illinois, but I'm, I'm actually looking to move out of the state potentially. Um, what's your top destination? This is going to sound really basic, but... (laughs) Wait, hold on. Before you say anything, let me try to guess based just strictly on that statement. Okay. This is going to sound really good. Okay. All right. Hold on. Um, All right. My gut is telling me if it's going to sound really basic, that means either New York or California. New York and California were up there for me before, but they're a little bit too expensive. Um, Not New York or California. Colorado? Colorado's up there. It's not my top choice. It's pretty high up there, though. Portland. Not Portland. <laughs> All right. I'm out of guesses. I lose. 
Um, I want to go to Miami. Oh wow! You're taking your talents to Long Beach. I I would love that. I'm I'm <laughs> gonna be if if I end up going there, gonna grab an Airbnb for a couple of months just to feel it out, take some salsa lessons. That should that should help my chest, right? I cannot imagine a world where salsa lessons do not improve your chest play. Absolutely. Plus, Miami actually doesn't it have a massive uh, Cuban community, just like a Cuban chess presence. I, I've always loved, I've always loved the style of chess that seems to come from Cuba. Yeah, I definitely appreciate it. I mean, you've got Bruzon and Dominguez playing actively in the U.S. now, which I think is like super cool because I used to watch them like on Chess.fm and ICC in, in like the early 2000s. And to see them like active on the U.S. circuit, like Bruzon played at the U.S. Open, I think. Really? How cool, how cool is that? Yeah. Yeah, former former 2700, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's insane. Um, there's There's something like... We're like living in a super privileged chess world right now. <laughs> like that's, do you want to talk about privilege? Like we are in the, one of the most privileged chess existences of all time. No, we, we, we totally are. We can um, watch the world champion play bullet chess from a hot tub on a cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. I missed, I missed that stream. I'm going to have to find a YouTube video of it. Yeah, speaking of streaming, there you go. Okay, we're tying this back. We were supposed to talk about streaming, but that's okay. We've talked about way cooler stuff than that. <laughs> I mean, for real, like that's that's where we are right now. Yeah. How did you put it? The new world that we're all stepping into? Yeah, something something like that. I mean, I, I've definitely, I obviously started streaming a lot more. Um, for those of you who want to check out my channel, it's twitch.tv slash Akash, A-A-K-A-A-S-H. Um, I stream primarily on Lee Chess every once in a while. I'll stream on chess.com, but Lee Chess is my, Lee Chess is my home. Um, but I've definitely, you know, not just as a streamer, but as a viewer, I've absolutely loved, I've loved the explosion, um, that, that has come from, uh, the pandemic and just the increase of Twitch streamers. I mean, could not agree there's, more. there's a lot of great content and the fact that they're being broadcast now on like chess 24, Lee chess, chess.com. Um, I, I, th- I think that's just great. And I'm also not one of those people who gets super dismissive on like the lower rated events. Like I know there's like controversies, controversies online about pog champs. Um, it being just like lower rated, but I, I think that stuff is fun. Um, I think it attracts more viewers and I'm of the, uh, I'm of the opinion that the more people there are interested in chess, the better it is for our game. Even if it like dilutes, uh, certain qualities of the game, I I think more is generally better. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, you know, uh, how do you make chess entertaining? And I think there have been some excellent strides towards making chess more entertaining. For example, the Meltwater Championship, right? Where things are more rapid, there's lots of games going on at the same time, there's constant action. And PogChamps is just another example of that, right? How can we take those and make it more entertaining? Because the larger audience we reach, the broader audience we reach, the better it is for everybody. There's larger prize funds, there's larger sponsorship investment and opportunities. Uh, So I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah, I wonder, like, in PogChamps, you basically have two massive streamers. Uh, We have commentators for the game, obviously, but you'll have two streamers that are, like, 
voicing their thoughts IRL during the game and even talking to chat um, in emote only mode or whatever. I would love to see something like that more common with higher level chess, you know, even yeah. when you, even when you get these like intense matches between players, I feel like it's typically still like, Oh, the players are focusing heavily on the game and not really interacting. I would love yes. to see like Magnus versus um, Ali Reza or something like that, where they were actually interacting in real time. Dude, I am. I totally agree. I think that would be such a fascinating tournament experience. Like, I want to see that happen. I want to see that get organized. Like, the United States stream or like the global streamer championship, right? Like, you have to stream. You have to interact with your audience. Maybe there's even some rule where there's like a minimum number of interactions per game or per ten moves or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be that, that would be sick. And what was that? What was that over the board tournament where the players like would walk into the confession booth and just talk? I you think that I mean? was the Singfield Cup because that was in St. Louis where the confessional was. Yeah, that like things like that. I mean, it, it's it's a little bit different because you're going into a separate room. But I I just love that, and I agree. I think I think there's massive opportunity there. Um, Pete, I have a question for you, kind of related to. USCF's direction with this. Um, I believe there was, correct me if I'm wrong, but was there a qualification spot for the US championship that was online this year? There was. It was the first time in history that that has happened. Um, I can speak to it directly because I was actually the organizer, the chief organizer of that event. Nice. Um, and uh, it was a really fun event. So the way it worked is we had multiple qualification weekends. Um, the first one, I think, was under 1,400, might have been under 1,200. And it was every 400 points. So it was like 1,200, 1,600, 2,000. And the top eight from each under section got to play in the next one. So if you were, uh, if you were 1,199, the only way you could play in the under 1,600 was if you finished in the top eight of the under 1,200. And then you could go on and progress and progress and progress until you got to the final eight. And then those eight played a round robin. The round robin winner got a, got a spot in the um, U.S. championship. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, I think I played in the under 2400 and made it to the next one. And I just got absolutely destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would love like to hear whether or not USCF is going to continue with events like that um, where... Uh, you know, within the over-the-board tournament world, I know sometimes getting players to those events, like maybe because of costs or whatever, um, can be a challenge. But I feel like with an online avenue now, it, it increases the uh, accessibility for a lot more players. And yeah, is that going to be a like a larger theme of USCF moving forward? So that's an excellent question. Um, the short answer is maybe. Um, the reason that it happened uh, last year in 2020 was because the U.S. Open didn't happen, and the U.S. Open confers a qualifier spot. Hmm. So um, it's very possible that it was simply a one-off to replace the qualifier spot conferred by the U.S. Open. However, in keeping with our conversation tonight, U.S. Chess, in a lot of ways, is a DAO because our governance structure is based on delegates. So um, the delegates have an annual meeting every year at the US Open where they 
you know, make amendments, make uh, motions, and, and can change sort of how U.S. Chess runs and operates. So if this is something that players are interested in, for example, you, Akash, or anyone for that matter, and they want to see more things like that, find out who your delegate is that represents your state. You know, for us, it would be Illinois. Um, have them make a motion. Have them try to get events like that on the calendar. That is something that uh, I personally thought it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, it is something that um, was cool. It was streamed. I don't know if you remember that. There were streamers each weekend sort of broadcasting the games. And uh, overall, it ended up qualifying um, some really strong players to that final eight. Uh, and and I believe I believe it was Elshon, if I remember correctly. I think it was Elshon Mora Diabati who made it on to the U.S. Championships. Um, but yeah, if that's something that <clears throat> people are interested in and want to see more of, there's an avenue for anybody, anybody who is a U.S. Chess member to present that, to bring that up, take it to your delegate and see if you can get it, uh, get it presented in, a, in, a, in an official format at the annual meeting. That's super cool. I mean, I think um, with the average age of chess players like going uh, skewing younger and younger, I think events like that would be uh, can only just be more beneficial. Like I was talking to someone who they they had been playing chess for like six years, but they had never played on a physical board. Wow. Um, it's just like this digital. It's like a digitally native game nowadays, which is, you know, try explaining that to, to <laughs> Bobby Fisher. 1850. <1850. laughs> yeah, to Steinitz or I don't think Steinitz is 1850, but <laughs> no, he was. I think he he. I believe he won the world championship in 1863. So 1850, he at least knew how to play. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, I yeah, I, I think events like that can only be a good thing. And I I personally. Um, I loved, it must've been a couple of years ago now, but like some of the early pro chess league, um, events in on chess.com where for yeah. the finals, they ended up doing like that, uh, in-person event where they got like, it might've been like Chengdu and some Armenian team or whatever like that. That looked really fun. I, I didn't get to go in person, but, um, that hybrid approach I think is super cool. Yeah, I agree. Um, I completely agree. I think, you know, um, the more of that we see, the better. I, I have student requests who will come to me and um, I'll start working with them. They'll be like, yeah, my goal is just to have, like, be a good bullet player. You know, <laughs> like they don't care about <laughs> tournaments at all. They don't want to go to an over the board tournament. They don't want to have a rating. They just want to be good at bullet. <laughs> so, like, they'll be like, yeah, I saw you were like, uh, whatever rating in bullet and you play bullet and can you teach me how to be good at bullet? <laughs> like, all right, sure. Yeah. How, how does that make you feel? Um, I guess good. It, you know, like that's my gut reaction is I feel pretty good about it because it's cool, right? Like it's not just people who want to learn like the classical history of the game and, and how to like understand all these elements. It's like, no, dude, I want to be good at like, I want to be good with my mouse skills. I want to know all the little, little tricks to like flag somebody, <laughs> you know, like I don't care about chess. I just want to have fun at, at playing one minute. Um, mm -hmm. So I think there a lot of traditionalists might be like put off by that and be like, well, that's not even chess, you know, bullet chess isn't even chess. But for me, it's like, it's more of that canvas that you were talking about, right? Like there are many ways you could paint. There are many ways that you could become an artist. And if that's what you like, you know, find what you like and, and do it. You know, find your, find your thing, 
right? Just like life, find your thing, find what pleases you, find what you enjoy doing and, and go with it. And if you like bullet and you like flagging people and you want to be really good at one minute chess, more power to you, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm a hundred percent, um, with you on that. And, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much exactly like I, I was playing like primarily blitz and bullet, like a lot of bullet, uh, during this pandemic, but playing so much of that too did give me again, that appreciation for uh, classical chess again. So, um, it can't be a bad thing. Like I, I really, I really don't think it can be a bad thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So like speaking of like weird formats, I'm like making it your own canvas and, you know, bullet, uh, changing changing your approach to the game and people doing what they want to do and finding their own way. You told me before the show that you recently played in a really fascinating tournament um, slash party. Yeah. JJ's Bachelorette Party, which was also a chess tournament. I got to know about this. Tell me about this. Oh, hell yeah. So <laughs> JJ Lang, he's um, an ex- uh, USCF expert going to be master soon. Uh, he goes by Chess Feels on Twitter if you guys want to follow him. Um, but he held a bachelorette party um, just to celebrate him getting married. So it was, uh, we played it. Was out. he the quote unquote bachelorette? Yes. Okay. He, wore, he, he brought a tiara and uh, and like a ribbon. Oh my God. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. I love it. Um, but yeah, so we just played it outdoors in this park. Um, three plus two time control. Um, it was it was really fun uh, just to to be able to play, you know, quote unquote serious chess in a casual environment. I I'm always a big fan of blitz tournaments, and um, I know I've I've talked to previous guests on this podcast, uh, National Master Gopal Menon, about. Uh, there should be more like quick rated time controls, like uh, uh, tournaments, I should say. So like 25 minutes and below. Um, I thought it was a lot of fun. You know, we were grilling, we were grilling food. Um, there was a bar like right next to the park. <laughs> so beverages were consumed. Right. Um, and then actually- the blitz improved, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, less inhibitions when you make your move. So I have a theory that up until like the third or maybe fourth drink, your blitz actually gets better. How do you feel about that theory? I believe it. Um, Although, yeah, you don't care as much past the fourth drink. And so it's, uh, yeah, your rating is probably going to drop at that point. But have you ever seen the old Kung Fu movie? I think it's called The Drunken Master with Jackie Chan or something like that. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of these old corny kung fu's, okay? Like, we used to watch them all the time in college. And there's this quote where, like, the drunken master says, um, you can become very strong, but it's difficult to drink the proper amount. <laughs> oh, so yes. the, the idea is there's like, a, there's, like, a point of diminishing returns, right? Yeah. There's a sweet spot. and Right, right. The more you drink, the more you think you're in the sweet spot, but it's not always not always the case. Um, there was actually one crazy moment that happened in the tournament. This is even before we started uh, drinking anything, but someone brought these uh, his ho- bottles of hot sauce, and um, I drink pre- or I eat pretty spicy food generally. So does uh, Gopal. Oh but, God, yeah. Uh, 
the two of us and JJ, we ended up just taking some hot sauce from one of these bottles. And that was really not a good idea. Like that, <laughs> that, that thing was the hottest oh, sauce no. I've ever had in my life. It was 6.6 million Scoville units. If oh. anyone knows about that. I follow this guy on TikTok. That's like his whole thing. Like people will send him the spiciest thing they can find and he will just eat it. And like, that's oh the God. whole video. <laughs> Yeah, I would not recommend. I think the sauce is called Doomed, but um, there was some collateral damage last night and today from it. <laughs> oh my god! So it sounds like you guys had a good time. It was a great time. I, I would definitely uh, do it again. Well, Akash, this has been uh, a lot of fun. I hope I hope our viewers uh, viewers what are we talking about this podcast? Hope our listeners have uh, stayed with us through uh, through and through to this point. Because one question that I love to ask, um, I love to ask our guests before they depart is, you know, what advice would you have for somebody? You know, you do a lot of streaming. You've done some Lee Chess plays. You've been featured on the main page of Lee Chess. Um, what advice would you give somebody who uh, wants to get into streaming, who's really interested in it, and wants to stream some chess? Yeah, so I, I'd love to just uh, touch on this. So. I think the first step is don't dress it up too much. Um, in any active creation, I think we we emphasize people tend to try to be perfectionists. Don't try to be a perfectionist. I mean, you're live streaming. Your chest isn't going to be fantastic all the time. Um, maybe your overlay is not perfect, but it doesn't matter. Like the first step is just putting yourself out there and streaming. Um, it doesn't have to be super fancy. Uh, the next most important thing I think is interacting with other on other channels. So if there's this, uh, if there's this Lee chess or chess.com streamer, you really like hop into their chat, say hello, just figure out maybe they have a discord, engage with their community. Um, doing this stuff is really important because you get a better pulse on the culture that you're going to be working with. Uh, so, so make sure you do that. Having other people know you is good because you have potentially uh, new viewers. And uh, if you're lucky, sometimes you'll get a raid from another streamer. Uh, I think the chess community is pretty good about helping others out. It's, I, I don't really think it's like a cutthroat competitive space. So make sure you do that. The uh, the benefits are super valuable. And uh, lastly, I would say just don't take it too seriously. Um, of course, if you're, uh, sometimes you have to, but like for the most part, you're just there to have fun. Um, so make sure you're enjoying it above all else. I, I think that's great advice. I think, you know, honestly, um, from, <clears throat> from what I've seen, you have some great vibes on your channel. And uh, I think those are those are words to live by for people who want to get into it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, d I definitely try to keep good vibes. I try to be pretty welcoming. But um, the, the most important thing is, am I enjoying this? Right. Are you having fun with it, right? Exactly. Well, Akash, those are those are some great words to uh, to think about for all of our listeners who might want to get into this. I appreciate you offering that insight from an experienced streamer. And I really appreciate you coming on and talking to me. This this has been truly, truly fun. Yeah, this was a blast. I, I really loved it, Pete. 
Great. Well, thanks again. Um, on behalf of U.S. Chess and the Chess Underground, that was National Master Akash Maduri. Uh, I am your host, Pete Karianis. I will see you next month in October. In the meantime, signing off. Akash, cheers. Thanks so much. Peace out, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday, and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. U.S. Chess would like to thank Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media for a podcast production and editing. If you are starting your own podcast, visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com for consulting, production, and editing. Until next time, signing off, Pete Karianis.